Welcome to the Officer Media Group Roll Call Podcast. Officer Roll Call is meant to inform and entertain. Now, let's get into this episode. Welcome to this episode of the Officer Roll Call Podcast, sponsored by FirstNet, built with AT&T. The only wireless network designed with first responders in mind. When every second counts, efficient communication is essential. With mission-critical push-to-talk, FirstNet users can access public safety-grade group communication. Mission-critical push-to-talk provides familiar LMR audio experience with enhanced situational awareness capabilities only available on LTE and 5G networks. Talk, text, and send video with confidence in your audio quality. Connect with other agencies via mutual aid requests, free up LMR capacity, and save on device costs. Visit FirstNet.com today to learn more about mission-critical push to help. I'm Paul Peluso, the editor of Officer Magazine, and I'm joined today, as always, by Frank Borelli, the editorial director of Officer Media Group. How's it going, Frank? Good morning, Paul. I'm excited. I love you know our topic today, the active shooter response evolution stuff. I always get pumped up about it. My blood pressure goes up and my heart rate accelerates and I'm I'm ready to jump into this. Yeah. So like you mentioned, we're going to be talking about active shooter response. And for an upcoming issue of Officer Magazine, um, Frank has written a, an article about evolving active shooter response and specifically kind of being able to identify the armed good guys um, at, at the scene of an incident. But first, Frank, I want you to t- kind of talk about the background of, you know, overall active shooter response and how it's changed over the years. You know, it's it's interesting, Paul, because the term active shooter and now you hear active killer, active aggressor, um, immediate threat, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different terms, but we never really talked about it until after Columbine, which occurred in 1999. Um, but one active shooter in particular affected our response long before that evolution of law enforcement in general. And that was uh, Charles Whitman way back at the Texas tower in 1966. Prior to that, we didn't even have SWAT teams in this country, but because of that incident, the watch riots and a couple of other sniper incidents, um, we developed SWAT teams and, and they grew uh, in, in law enforcement use coast to coast. And that kind of changed the dynamic because prior to that, there was no special weapons teams to call out. I mean, if you were a patrol officer, you, you were in that group of patrol officers and you responded to an emergency, you had to figure out a plan and deal with it. There, there was no sit, wait, and talk. That's what SWAT really stands for, by the way. Um, th- there was no sitting around holding a perimeter waiting for SWAT to show up. But once SWAT was developed, that's what the protocol became. And that's exactly what the officers did at Columbine. They took up positions uh, of cover on the perimeter and they waited for SWAT to arrive. Obviously, we can't do that anymore. The, the public outcry and the loss of life, we were forced to evolve. And then the second evolution occurred where we went back to patrol officers having to form a plan and respond to the immediate threat. Now, the plan originally became, and I took my first active shooter instructor course in 2000, um, the year 2000, and we were everybody was teaching a four-man diamond. So you get on the scene as fast as you can. You wait for three other officers to show up. You form this diamond. You make entry. You move to the sound of shots. All the tactics were taught. Everything was going on. And then you neutralize the shooter. Um, We realized over time that that was too slow. I mean, you might be someplace where getting four people could take too long. I mean, in, in 
New York City or in Prince George's County, Maryland, there might be enough police officers where you could get four cops relatively quickly. But in Clay County, Texas, it might take a while or Humboldt, Iowa, it might take a while, you know. And, and so um, that kind of evolved into teaching buddy teams where you had two officers go. And then if two more officers came in, then you could group up and form this four man diamond. But, you know, it was kind of funny because I guess in about 2007, I took uh, an active shooter response instructor active shooter response instructor class. It was a refresher course. And uh, the guy teaching the class said, we're going to teach you all these tactics, but I'm telling you right now that if I get to a high school and there's shots being fired inside, I'm not waiting for anybody. I'm going in alone. Um, anybody else can keep up. And that was kind of the outlook of a lot of police officers and deputies and troopers and everybody else. And so the single officer response was kind of born. Now we, it's hard to teach protocols and tactics for single officer um but there are there are companies that's all they do is they teach single officer response and obviously anybody teaching active shooter today has to be able to teach that single officer response is it a preferred instance no because there's no way you could protect 360 degrees when you're by yourself moving towards the sound of shots always looking towards the direction of the sound of shots you break your neck trying to see everything around you as you move through and you can't slow down at open doors or closed doors or any, you've got to go to the sound of shots. Um, so that's where we are in this evolution. Uh, but, you know, nothing ever stops evolving. If, if there's one constant in life, it's change. So we're coming up on a situation now where we're going to have to evolve again. And, uh, you know, that's what this article is really about, is being uh, that, that next evolution, being able to correctly identify good guys in in and around active shooter scenes, because not everybody there that's a good guy is going to be in uniform. And that's that's what we're going to get into. Yeah, when, when we talk about, you know, single officer response, um, a, a lot of times now patrol officers are being expected to, you know, be the first on the scene and, and respond uh, to these incidents. And they're being equipped with more things like uh, ballistic shields uh, that they can, you know, tow around in their patrol vehicles. Um, school resource officers are expected to have, you know, the tools that they need uh, to respond, be the first responders of these incidents. Um, how, you know, how has that changed the role of the on the street officer, the patrol officer, when it comes to responding to these events, it hasn't really changed it much. I mean, it, it's yeah. better equipped them. We've we've seen yes. the necessity. You know, when when you look at an officer going into an active shooter event, you'd rather them have uh, a little more upgraded equipment, as if they were SWAT officers, a ballistic shield, a ballistic helmet, uh, maybe some upgraded medical or trauma care supplies, better coverage from their body armor. Um, and a lot of our industry supporters, the, the ballistic armor manufacturers, uh, the, the trauma medical companies are, that are packing kits, supplying um, tourniquets and pressure bandages and all that, hemostatic agents, they've stepped up their game and recognized the need for that, that one officer going through. So we're seeing things now like foldable shields. Um, you know, they're not the equivalent of the heavy ballistic shield but they're better than nothing. I mean, they, they provide a, a greater area of coverage without being so heavy. You got to put it on wheels and push it through a hallway. Um, so we're, we're, it's not so much that the job has changed, but the equipment that's available is so much better 
for the patrol officer to be able to keep it in his in his trunk or his storage area, get on the scene, grab and go, and be better protected and better able to stay in the fight longer to save more lives and neutralize the threat. And we always talk about how far we've come with technology, how much it's changed, and um, what role uh, does communications play in you know these for first response officers, these patrol officers being able to respond to these incidents by being able to get more communication, more information through communication. Well, and that's the key is the more information you have, the better decisions you make. Um, technology, especially as it relates to communication and data delivery has come a long way. And that gives the officers as much information as they can get before they deploy on the scene of a given incident. And then while they're there, the, the today's technology communications data delivery helps the dispatch centers, the emergency centers, be able to keep track of the officer, what's going on, what what this, the um, situational uh, characteristics are around them, what what the environment is, what you know, how they're. I don't. It's so hard to articulate, but it's it's all about yeah. uh, being able to keep track of the officer for officer safety sake or officer survival sake, um, and how the situation changes. It's always so dynamic. And the, the fact that you can collect the data, do a crash analysis of the data, and deliver back information is is a huge strength that obviously didn't exist 30, 40, 50 years ago. Great. So I just wanted to remind our listeners that uh, this episode of the Officer Roll Call podcast is sponsored by FirstNet, built with AT&T, reliable, dependable FirstNet. Uh, visit FirstNet.com today to learn more about mission 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 critical push to talk and um in all of their LTE and 5g uh capabilities for officers so frank if we want to go into the uh to your article here evolving active shooter response um like we said you're talking about um how you know SWAT teams and officers have to be able to recognize uh people on the scene already that that are armed but aren't the bad guys but are the good guys uh that are there. If you want to talk about this article a little bit and kind of um, what what you discovered, so um, the, there there was a, a Supreme Court decision last year, uh, and they call it the Bruin decision. Uh, essentially, there was nine states, and, and New York was one of them, that restricted the the uh, non law enforcement right to carry. So, uh, as the example, my wife couldn't get a carry permit in our home state because she couldn't show good cause. Uh, and the way, the way the Supreme court case came out was that the Supreme court said the good cause requirement was unconstitutional, that the second amendment doesn't require a good cause. The second amendment is, uh, the right, you, you, the right to conceal carry and the right to keep and bear arms. So any law abiding citizen of adult age, should be able to carry a gun if they choose to carry a gun, that the states couldn't limit that by saying, oh, you have to have a good reason. Self-defense is your good reason. Welcome to America. So with that, um, and I don't know about everywhere else in the country, but in my home state, the number of people that had gun permits out of the blue skyrocketed. Um, our, our governor suspended the good cause requirement, which had been in existence, and the state police couldn't keep up with the requests for, for firearms. Um, Conceal and carry permits. Carry and conceal is actually what they're called. In my state anyway. So 
due to that instance, I had a conversation with a gentleman named Rob Pincus. Um, he, he's uh, executive director of Second Amendment organization. I've known Rob a long time, and we were talking about immediate responders. You know, we talk about first responders, and I take nothing away from them, having been one for 40 years, police officers, firemen, paramedics, EMTs, all first responders. But there's this other term now, immediate responder. So what's an immediate responder? If you're in a shopping mall and an active shooter incident starts, you're already in the vicinity. You're a potential victim. If you choose, if you're legally armed and you choose to draw your weapon and engage that active shooter, that threat excuse me, that's an immediate response. If you're an off-duty police officer sitting in a college classroom and somebody comes in with a gun and starts shooting people, you draw your weapon and engage a shooter, that's an immediate response. Those are the immediate responders. So my question with Rob was, how do uniformed officers showing up to a dynamic instance of an active shooter event, an active killer event, how do they identify the good guy, legally armed civilians who are either defending themselves or aggressing on the threat, an, an active killer, active shooter. Um, and what it boiled down to really was uh, behaviors and, and, and looking at body language. I mean, and that all of this applies to the off-duty police officer as well as the legally armed civilian. Um, if they're smart legally armed civilians, uh, if an event kicks off near them, will try to find the closest exit and get out of the situation. They, they might have their gun in hand just in case they're met with a threat on their way out. However, what's going to happen when the police, uniform police show up and they see this person fleeing the scene with a gun in their hand? Are they going to get verbally engaged and told to drop the gun? Are they just going to get shot? You know, what's going to happen? What if they can't escape the area and they are simply taking cover? They're in a defensive posture. Their weapon is in their hand. They are, you know, again, they're behind cover. They are trying to stay unseen by the threat, by the person who's doing the shooting, but they're not trying to actively engage anything. They are simply prepared to engage if the threat comes to them. What happens when the uniform officer gets on the scene and sees this person hunkered down behind a concrete bench with their gun in their hand? Are they a threat or are they not a threat? Do they get verbally engaged? Do they get shot? Uh, and it really does boil down to training on the part of both. So those, those legally armed civilians and our off-duty officers understand aren't involved. And when I say legally armed civilians, off-duty officers have the same duty on-duty officers have. There to move to the sound of shots. There to aggress the threat and neutralize it. What's going to happen when when uniform officers show up and they see an off-duty officer? If he's not readily identifiable or known to them, he or she runs the risk of being engaged as an active shooter if they can't be otherwise identified. There's a challenge. Uh, that's to be addressed strictly at the agency level, academy level, uh, roll call training, so on and so forth. But going back to that legally armed civilian, what are their behaviors? What are their postures? If they look like they're an aggressor, if there is gu their gun is up in their line of sight and they're moving toward the sound of shots or their gun's up in their line of sight and they're moving away from the sound of shots, either way, gun up in your line of sight is an aggressive posture. You're hunting. You're looking like you're trying to find a threat. 
police officers coming into the scene are going to view you as an aggressor. However, if your weapon is depressed, if you have to have it in your hand at all, it's depressed and you are simply escaping, not looking like you're hunting, that's a defensive posture. And it goes into a lot more detail than that. But at the end of the day, what we really have to be doing is we really have to change our active shooter training to include recognizing legally armed civilians and what their behaviors might be. I'm not ever suggesting that we, we do anything to increase officer survival risk. Not, not saying that at all. What I am saying is you can't simply go into a scene and shoot everybody who's not in a uniform that has a gun in their hand. In today's world, they simply may not be the threat. They may simply be avoiding becoming a victim. Um, and that's what I tried to articulate in that article. Um, I know Rob and the Second Amendment organization uh, have been developing a curriculum to teach, um, you know, the civilians, legally armed civilians, how to behave at the at such incidents, at such situations, so that they can get out without being engaged by the police any other way than verbally. Uh, you know, obviously not having a gun in hand is preferred. Having it holstered, having it, putting it on the ground. If you see the police officers coming in for whatever reason, you can't get it in your holster. Put it on the ground. Not being armed, not having the gun in hand is the first preference. Being in an obvious defensive posture and then being 100% compliant with orders is the second preference. But law enforcement also has to train, they have to, after we have to incorporate this into our training where it's not simply go in, move to the sound of the shot, shoot everybody with a gun. You only shoot shooters. We only neutralize threats. If people are in a defensive posture, they're not a threat. We need to incorporate that judgmental piece into our training as well. And Frank, just one question, just how, how will that be incorporated into the training? What kind of training, um, you know, exercises, um, you know, could could virtual training help with the, this, you know, different scenarios or what, what do you think is the best route to uh, incorporating this type of training into, uh, you know, either academy or refresher training for agencies? Well, you know, I, I think it, it spans everything, Paul. You're absolutely right. Scenario-based projected simulation training would be an excellent tool. Force on force with simunitions uh, or uh, the Umarex marking cartridges and those weapons. Excellent training tool, but it, it's a holistic approach. You have to cover it in the academy, in the classroom. You have to cover it in practical scenarios and practice. You have to cover it in the simulation training. You have to cover it in force-on-force -force training. You have to engage the officer's sympathetic nervous systems. You have to get them ramped up, their stress levels high, and then make them judge things correctly and critique them when they make mistakes. That's what the training is all about. So it's going to have to be across the board, but all of those tools would absolutely be uh, valuable and correct. The, 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 the biggest key is going to be when you're doing force-on-force -force training, you have role players that are properly choreographed so that they're not trying to make the officers fail. They're displaying the desired behaviors, and then the responding officers that are doing the training, taking the training, they exercise their judgment, and then that judgment's critiqued in the after action review part. Great, Frank. So I just want to thank everybody for joining us today for another episode of the Officer Roll Call podcast. Um, and for FirstNet, uh, built with AT&T for sponsoring this podcast um, about active shooters. 
So it, please, you know, visit firstnet.com uh, to learn more about mission critical push to talk uh, technology. And thanks again to FirstNet built with AT&T. So Frank, is there anything you wanted to add uh, before we sign off this podcast? Same message as always. Stay safe. Go home at the end of your shift. And thank you for everybody for tuning in. As always, if you have any questions for us, you can reach us at editors at officer.com. That's editors at officer.com. Please feel to feel free to send us a message, any suggestions you may have, and uh, we'll make sure we answer them. So as always, uh, take care and uh, yeah, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Officer Roll Call. Be sure to check back every two weeks for a new episode. Stay safe.